0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dana Mirsalis, PhD candidate at Harvard University to take a look at Shinto in modern Japan. Together we unpack the tricky task of defining what Shinto is, whether it is an unofficial Japanese religion, a Japanese religion, or even a religion at all. We also explore the ways Shinto shapes and is engaged with by contemporary Japanese, as well as the shifting roles of women within the priesthood. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Dana. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there?
1: Okay, so my field of study is, broadly speaking, modern Japanese religion. And specifically, I focus on modern and contemporary Shinto, uh, specifically on the gendering of the Shinto priesthood. And that is my dissertation topic. And my path to that field is sort of unusual, I was homeschooled until college, but I saw uh, Spirited Away when I was 11 years old, and I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I only understood about 50% of the movie, and being a precocious homeschooler, I thought, well, I want to understand all of it, so I started raiding our local library to try to figure things out. That got me interested in anime and manga more generally, and in Japanese studies also more generally, and then... I started at community college. We had a really great Japanese program, took a Japanese culture class, and found out that some of the stuff in Spirited Away was actually drawn from Japanese religion, and through that became really interested in Japanese religion. I then wound up transferring to a four-year university to finish my degree. And while I was there, I decided to write my graduation thesis on modern Shinto, which was a really wild choice because there was not that much research to draw from. So I was just sort of cobbling together everything I could find. And I figured, well, okay, this was really difficult, but I want to pursue this more. So I will just, if this research doesn't already exist, I will just have to write it myself. So after college, I got a Fulbright Fellows grant to go to Japan for a year. And I was studying something that had interested me in my undergrad thesis that I hadn't been able to find any info on, which was the connections between Shinto shrines and local communities. And while I was conducting that research, I wound up meeting several priests there who were all women. And this really surprised me because I'd never seen any mention of female priests before. And I thought, wow, this is really embarrassing that I don't know anything. I better find out as much as I possibly can, found out that there wasn't really any research on it, and then decided that I would make the research myself. And that's how I wound up here. So I'm basically, it's a lot of me getting very interested in something, finding out that I can't read something someone else has already written on it, and then deciding to write the thing myself. So I'm currently a PhD candidate at Harvard, writing my dissertation on this topic that I got really interested in when I was 20. So
0: great. So Shinto, is rather difficult to concisely summarize. Something I found when I tried to explain it to one of my housemates the other day. But could you try and briefly explain what Shinto is for any of our listeners out there who are unfamiliar with the religion?
1: Okay, yeah. Um, So I'm going to give a very concise definition and then I'm going to talk about how it's very complicated to actually say that. So a lot of the time, Shinto is described as an indigenous Japanese religion, which seems pretty clear-cut. A lot of the time when we're talking about Shinto, we're actually talking about shrines that are under the jurisdiction of Jinja Honcho, which is the Association of Shinto Shrines. They control about 80,000 shrines in Japan, um, which are staffed by about 21,000 priests. The reason why talking about Shinto is complicated is because Shinto as it exists now has basically only existed in this form since about the 1870s with pretty drastic shifts still occurring after about 1945. So basically uh, throughout Japanese history, there have been shrines which enshrine deities called kami and they were scattered about Japan. They weren't really organized into an overarching religion or an overarching structure. And at different points in Japanese history, they have also been pretty heavily entwined with Buddhist institutions, often sharing land or having uh, the clergy performing ceremonies for both a shrine and a temple. In the medieval period, you see this theory called Honji Suijaku, which refers to the idea that the kami are actually manifestations of Buddhist deities. And so there's a lot of different ways that Shinto and Buddhism have wound up being intertwined throughout history. the point that there are some scholars who say that we can't really talk about Shinto as a separate entity until and then people offer separate dates. Some people say until 1868, some people say until roughly the 14th through 16th centuries. Um, So there's a lot of debate about how we talk about shrines and about uh, the deities that are enshrined in them, but the big shift that happened is In 1868, the Meiji Restoration happened, which is when a new government came into power. They took down the Tokugawa shogunate and restored the emperor and established basically a constitutional monarchy. And as part of this nation-building process, they tried to stitch together all those disparate local shrines into this overarching structure called Shinto. Originally, they thought maybe they would make Shinto a national religion. They then decided not to, for complicated reasons that I can talk about later. Instead, they sort of instituted Shinto as, a, you could say, a, a national ethics program. The idea was that it was a super religious entity, which meant that it didn't violate uh, the Meiji Constitution actually had a religious freedom clause in it. So forcing people to go to shrines didn't violate that. Clause, people still had religious freedom because Shinto wasn't considered a religion. So this structure existed until 1945, when Japan lost World War II and the Allied occupation came and wrote a document called the Shinto Directive, which basically blamed a large part of the aggression of the Asian-Pacific War on what they called state Shinto, which wasn't really a term that had been used all that much up to that point or really at all. And they separated this out from shrine Shinto, which they said was a real religion that had been sullied in the name of aggression. So they said Shinto is a religion. You can't keep making people do it anymore. The new constitution also had a religious freedom clause in it. So what you currently have is Shinto as under uh, Jinja Honcho is very much a product of this 19th century attempt to stitch it all together and also to separate it from Buddhism. So there was an attempt to move Shinto shrines out of Buddhist temple spaces or vice versa, and also to purge any elements which were too Buddhist from Shinto spaces. So you have this separation, the stitching together, this wetting it with Uh, the nation's apparatus. And then with the end of World War II, this pulling it out of that national apparatus, but keeping the overarching structure. And so that's why Shinto is sort of complicated to talk about, because it has this very complicated history. And this is, I should note, very much not my field of specialty. There are a lot of people who've written a lot of really good stuff about this. So I encourage you to go read their work. Uh, Maybe after the episode I will put together a a Twitter bibliography for people who want more reading. But yeah, that's basically the short answer of why Shinto is complicated to talk about and complicated to conceptualize.
0: Yeah, uh, one particularly interesting aspect of Shinto, given its modern history, is its unofficial status as a religion of Japan, something I understand to be hotly debated within Japanese religious studies. Could you give us an overview of these arguments?
1: Yeah, okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take each part of that statement and I can sort of spin out from there. So the first part (laughs) is the idea that it's a religion of Japan. Um, So like I said, some people identify it as an indigenous Japanese religion. This winds up getting contested because people note that elements of it are often shared in common with its neighbors in Asia, both in East Asia and in South Asia. And so there's a lot of flows of myths or similarities in myths between those places. In some cases, deities have traveled over um, and have been given separate names. There's also, as I said, that long period where it is very tightly entwined with Buddhism. So To give you a sort of concrete example that you can grab onto, uh, one of the shrines that I work at has a deity and shrine named Benzaiten. She's actually a Hindu deity who was incorporated into Buddhism as a protector of the Dharma, then traveled from India up to China and then from China to either Korea, Japan, or from China directly to Japan. So originally a Hindu deity that then gets incorporated into Buddhism, that then gets brought to Japan. And then when the uh, that Meiji restoration, Shinbutsubunmi, the separation of Shinto and Buddhism occurred, what wound up happening was she somehow wound up on the Shinto side. Um, so she's a Hindu deity who then became a Buddhist deity who then became a Shinto deity. So the question is, is that indigenous? Is that Japanese? So that's part one of the complication there. Part two is the term religion. So like I said, there was a period, a fairly extended period of time where Shinto was not considered a religion. And the reason for this, a lot of people have written good stuff about this. Again, just to name a couple quickly, if you want some good background reading. Um, Helen Hardacre, Trent Maxey, Jason Josephson-Storm, and Julian Thomas all have monographs about this. But basically, the concept of religion didn't exist in Japan until the Meiji period, so late 19th century. Um, And the reason why this term shukyo, which means religion, was invented was to talk about religious freedom, specifically because of treaties that uh, Western powers were imposing on Japan that required religious freedom. So basically freedom for them to practice Christianity and also have Christian missions and proselytization in Japan. So the concept of religion, shukyo is very much tied to Christianity. So just to sort of give you the most basic level of that argument, people then looked at, well, Christianity is a religion what does it have that defines it as a religion? And they would go and they'd say, okay, Islam is a religion. Buddhism, probably a religion. And three of the things uh, that wind up getting identified a lot of the time are doctrine, founder, and then churches. Shinto doesn't really have an established doctrine or so they argue. It doesn't really have a founder because it's an ethnic religion. It's very common for ethnic religions to not necessarily have a founder. And then churches are very up in the air. A way that you use a shrine space is not necessarily the way that a church would operate. And so looking at that and then looking at Shinto, they said, well, Shinto doesn't look like a religion, and so therefore it's not a religion. So although it legally is a religion after World War II and after the Shinto Directive said it's a religion, there are still people in Japan who say Shinto isn't a religion, it's the culture of the Japanese, it's inherently Japanese, it's not religious, it's just something that we do, it is our practice. So that debate is still alive and well. And then the third point is the unofficial religion of Japan. So as I said, there was a period of time in the modern period starting in the Meiji, where Shinto was very closely associated with the state. And actually, Shinto priests were designated to be officials of the state, which meant that they were limited to men over the age of 20. And Shinto has also been relatively intertwined with the state for much of its history, which is also true of Buddhism. But, for example, the Ise Shrines, which is one of the famous shrines in Japan, is said to enshrine Amaterasu Omikami, who is the progenitor of the imperial line, according to myth. She is the sun goddess, and there are special shrines associated with the imperial family um, and with the imperial palace. There are certain rites that are performed by the emperor, and state patronage of different religious institutions has been very common basically since the beginning of recorded history in Japan. And so there's a lot of these very close associations. As of, again, 1945, there is this both strict separation of church and state and designation of Shinto as a religion, which means that therefore it must be separated. But there's still a lot of Ways that that gets complicated, some of your listeners might know about the visits to the Yasukuni Shrine by the prime ministers, for example, which is a shrine in Tokyo that enshrines and memorializes the war dead. Or they might know about there have been a number of lawsuits about using public funds to pay for Shinto ceremonies. For example, paying for a ground purification ceremony before a municipal building is built, is that a violation of the separation of church and state? And Jinja Huancho itself, the Association of Shinto Shrines, they're very, very, very supportive of the imperial family. They recognize the Ise Shrines as the highest ranked shrine in Japan. And so they are very much positioning themselves in that older form of thinking about their relationship to the state. So that's sort of why it gets complicated to talk about Shinto as a sort of unofficial religion of Japan.
0: Yeah, so we can see there are many different ways that one could consider or look at Shinto, and I guess it shouldn't be boiled down into one singular concept in that sense, right?
1: Yeah, and then you can also talk about, you know, Jinto Honcho doesn't have a monopoly on Shinto. There are other forms of Shinto that are not practiced by them that people tend to talk about less, which I also tragically don't study. So I know a little bit about them, but not a lot. But there are other Shinto groups or groups that wind up being identified by with Shinto, um, sometimes called Shinto type new religious movements. So there is a whole diversity out there.
0: So let's try and focus down on one aspect of Shinto. Uh, Recently, I discussed the idea of lived religion with Dr. Polina Kalata in relation to Buddhism regarding the everyday interaction of individuals and communities with the faith and its institutions. What is the lived religion of Shinto today?
1: Okay, this is a really interesting question because this sort of gets down to those fuzzy boundary lines. So let me use as an example one of my field sites. It is a mid-sized shrine in an urban area. It's in a residential area of an urban area. So mostly schools and houses and some small businesses surrounding it, not like directly in the heart of Tokyo or something like that. So you can think of people's engagement with Shinto in a whole bunch of different ways. So the most obvious is that there are festivals that are held, which usually bring in community members. They have a big fall festival. They have a spring festival. They have smaller festivals throughout the year. People might come and participate um, if they have mikoshi to be carried. So those are the palanquins where they carry the object of the deity and parade around the boundaries of the shrine's jurisdiction. Usually people might come to parade or they might come for a big ceremony. They might come to pray at the shrine, or to buy omamori, which are like protective charms, or they might buy ofuda, which are little amulets that you can put in your household altar. You're usually supposed to have one from the Ise shrines and then one from your local shrine. So they might engage in those ways. They might also visit the shrine during New Year's. Uh, That's one of the big times that you go and visit the shrine, usually during the first three days. But then there's also personal reasons that they can go to the shrine for ceremonies. So for example, they might go during their yakusoshi, which is their unlucky year. So men and women have separate years that are supposed to be unlucky for them. And so you go to the shrine to be purified so that you don't attract undue misfortune during that year. Or if let's say you buy a new bike and you want to get it purified. So you bring it to the shrine and they perform a ceremony for it. Or let's say you get into a car accident, you've gotten your car repaired and you want it purified now. Or there's Omiyamayati, which is when a month after a baby is born, it's brought to the shrine for the first visit. There are lots and lots of different ways that people might engage. You can also ask a priest to come outside of the shrine to perform a ceremony for you. So a ground purification ceremony, which I mentioned earlier, which is when you're about to build a building, you Do the ceremony or you might have one performed when you're moving into or out of a house again there's a whole i could list these endlessly but then there's a bunch of different ways that people engage with shrines that might not always be perceived as religious by them it might vary from person to person or priests might consider it religious but they don't anyway they're complicated but so let's focus in on the shrine again one is weddings, so some shrines have serve as wedding venues and will perform weddings there, but priests may also go out of the shrine uh, to a hotel to perform a wedding ceremony. Is that religious? Question mark. Another is just the act of visiting the shrine, so not necessarily going to pray. You might pray. You might perfunctorily bow as you pass through the Tori, that's the shrine gate, or you might sort of bow your head in the direction of the main building and then keep cruising. My main site has a, uh, a lake with turtles in it or a pond really with turtles in it that uh, the local kids just adore um, and they sell turtle food. So we often get a lot of people coming in who are basically just there to feed the turtles. But a lot of the time, those repeat visits may lead to the mom bringing the kids striking up a conversation with the head priest. And then when time comes for the family to get some sort of ceremony performed, they go, Oh, yeah, I remember that shrine, let's go back there. Um, And so there's lots of different ways that people can wind up creating connections with a shrine. Then there's also activities that might be hosted at the shrine that aren't actually associated with the shrine. So a lot of the time, especially mid-sized shrines may have space that can be rented out to the community. So I know of shrines that, for example, have a tea room. So they'll have a local tea club and do tea ceremony there. Or my main field site has a group of model train enthusiasts who come to the shrine once a month. And they set up their model trains in the banquet room, they hang out for an afternoon, then they pack up, they go home. Or you might have your neighborhood association meets at the local shrine. And this again the question is is this a religious activity or not is it causing people to have associations with the shrine or to get to know the staff at the shrine such that it may incline them to come back so that's sort of the complicated fuzzy different ways that people can uh, engage with the shrine but there's a whole range of activities that people may perform
0: Yeah, I guess when it comes to how people engage, it must be quite difficult to get a clear idea of one mode of engagement or another, given the the fuzzy lines. But are there any examples of people who reject Shinto, who live in Japanese society, in the way that an atheist might reject Christianity?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So people who belong to exclusive religions. So if you're Christian in Japan, you may not go to a shrine, you may not pray at a shrine. Some people do, some people don't. There are certain Buddhist groups that are fairly exclusive. So Sokogakai Gakkai is somewhat famous. They're a new religious movement, which has sort of relaxed their stance a little bit recently, but has generally been fairly exclusive in that if you are a member of Soka Gakkai, you don't participate in other religious activities. There are a lot of different religious groups that may not look kindly on people mixing and match and matching in the way that they might, if it's just Shinto and Buddhism, which traditionally it's very common for people to move between the two at different points in their life. The other thing is that there are definitely people who pretty strongly associate Shinto with the wartime government or associate Shinto with the very, uh, conservative politics of Jinja Honcho, the association of Shinto shrines, and they may very strongly reject Shinto. Or um, a really interesting case is, so the way that a lot of shrines wind up getting information about their festivals out is that they go to their local neighborhood associations, and they say, hey, we're doing you know this festival, would you be willing to post these posters for us on the neighborhood association bulletin boards? And I know of several neighborhood associations that are in the area of different shrines that say, no, we will not take your posters. We right. There is strict separation of church and state. If we post anything religious on those boards, it is a violation of our religious freedom. So my main site, I actually made a map of all the different neighborhoods that are associated with the shrine and went through with the head priest and figured out, The different orientations of each neighborhood association and there were a couple that she said yeah we don't send them anything because in this area there's a lot of people that are affiliated with this particular church and they've gotten mad at us in the past and so we don't want to bother them and then in this area you know the current president of the neighborhood association has specifically said don't send us anything and so we were respecting his wishes.
0: Wow fascinating. So A key area of your research is the role of women in Shinto following the end of the Asia-Pacific War in 1945. How has the role of women within Shinto changed throughout its modern history?
1: Okay, so to understand what's going on in the modern period, we have to actually go back a little bit. So women have been serving in shrines basically since we've had a written record, Um, and they've served different roles as ritualists. Um, They're usually female-specific roles, so they'll have different names than the male roles. Odaira Mika has a whole book on this, uh, if you read Japanese, which I highly recommend. But all of that changed, again, with the Meiji Restoration. So in 1871, because Shinto priests were designated government officials, the priesthood was limited to men over the age of 20. um, And hereditary shrine lineages were eliminated. Uh, That actually wasn't super successful. Um, Currently, a lot of shrines still, it's about 85% of shrines still pass father to child or parent to child now. But there was this restriction, which meant that women were basically ejected from shrines, serving in a priestly capacity. And there were a couple of petitions in the 1920s and 1930s to allow women back into the priesthood but nothing really changed until after the end of World War II when the newly formed Jinjo Honcho let first women into the priesthood in positions below head priest in 1946 and then in the position of head priest in 1947. So in 1947 women could serve any role in the priesthood And the number of men in the priesthood actually peaked in 2000 and has been declining ever since. And the number of women in the priesthood has continued to increase every year. And they currently make up about 16% of the priesthood and are projected to make up an even larger percentage in the not-too-distant future. So a bunch of sort of interesting things come out of this. But what I wind up studying is the way that role of priest has wound up being gendered. So you have this sort of theoretically gender neutral role. Priest isn't necessarily a gendered category, but often the way that you see them talked about is as female priests or as priests with male in parentheses there. So if you look at the documents that are first talking about women being let into the priesthood in the 1940s, they say that they were let in for two reasons, which is to open the way for the widows of priests who died in the war. So the idea is that if the husband dies, the wife will be able to take over until her son comes of age and is able to take over the shrine. But then the second reason is that they list is gender equality, which winds up being dropped pretty quickly from the rhetoric put out by the Association of Shinto Shrines, Shinto Honcho, starting at about the 1950s. Um, So if you look at the way that they're talked about now, they're pretty exclusively talked about by Jinja Honcho as a way to solve demographic shifts that are happening in Shinto. The problem is there aren't enough people to take over shrines because being a priest doesn't pay particularly well. It takes a fairly extended period of certification. You have to have two uninterrupted 30 day training courses. And it also tends to, as I said, mostly be hereditary, so passed from parent to child, which means that if you think about demographic shifts that are happening in Japan, which I know you've already had an episode about, but because of the declining birth rate, there are fewer choices of children who you can have take over, or you might have no children who you can have takeover. So the argument is that now we need female priests because they're here to offset a failing male labor force. And that is not the way that female priests necessarily talk about their own roles, but that's very much the sort of grammar that Jinjo Honcho talks about the men, because Jinjo Honcho tends to be fairly conservative in their gender norms and sees men and women as essentially different, and therefore there has to be a reason why female priests are serving when the role is really made for men in their eyes. And this means that they also have a lot of ways of trying to sort of manage or deal with female priest womanhood. So they have separate ritual technique for women and they have separate clothes that women are supposed to wear. And they have separate assumptions about what women can bring to the priesthood, what their sort of special innate womanly characteristics are. So that is a shortish answer.
0: So that goes nicely onto our next question. I'd like to briefly discuss the association of Shinto shrines, the official administrative body of the faith. What is the relationship between the regulations and rhetoric of the association and how Shinto is practiced within shrines?
1: Okay, so in order to understand this, first of all, Jito Honcho is an umbrella organization. And they do send representatives usually to the biggest festival of the year. It's called the Boreisai. So they will have someone there to basically present an offering on behalf of Jinjo Honcho. Otherwise, their engagement with individual shrines really, really varies a lot depending. So a lot of the shrines I study are mid-sized or small. So we're not talking about like Ise Shrine or like Meiji Shrine in Tokyo or any of the sort of big name tourist destinations that a lot of people will be going to. A lot of the time, these are small neighborhood shrines. They might have a couple of buildings. They might have one or two priests serving. They probably aren't serving full time. Also, a lot of the time, the people I'm talking to did not necessarily graduate from one of the Shinto universities. So there are different ways to get your certification within the priesthood. You can get the equivalent of a bachelor's degree from a uh, Shinto university. So there's Kokugakuin in uh, Tokyo and Kogakan in Ise. Or you can do sort of the equivalent of a master's degree, which is a one-year degree after you've completed college that trains you uh, to be a priest. Or you can do one of these one month crash courses where you have to do two of them to be able to serve as a head priest, but it's still very, very, very compressed. So if you think about the amount of contact hours people have, often the head priests I'm talking to have been through two of these crash courses. So they've had 60 days. They tend to have very strong memories of the courses on ritual technique because that's something that they use every day and also because they're incredibly intense, you're doing ritual technique basically like three or four times for eight hours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you have to memorize things really, really quickly. Um, People have pretty incredible stories about this, but you might only be studying, let's say you're studying the Kojiki, which is one of the oldest documents in Japan. It's a collection of myths, which is often sort of referred to as a founding text of Shinto or an important text of Shinto at least. Maybe you only study the Kojiki for like two days <laughs> and then you leave and immediately forget all of it because you don't have to take a test on it anymore. And you don't necessarily use that in your daily life as a priest. So the first issue is contact hours, that people are not necessarily being trained or they're being trained in ways that are very, very cram all the information in, remember it in time for the test, and then maybe let it slip out of your mind. The second problem is that since there isn't really a lot of checkup that happens, a lot of the time the people who most influence the way that you perform certain ceremonies or what you do in the shrine are actually your coworkers or the other people around you in that area. So to give you an example from my own work, I said that there are separate forms of ritual technique for men and women, and also separate vestments for male and female priests. And if you actually look at the way that that plays out in the field, for example, at my main field site, there's three priests, they're all women. The head priest uses male technique and wears male clothing. And the reason that she does this is because she inherited the clothing from the last head priest, who was a man. And when she was doing the training course, there were only three women in the course And they were asked, do you want to learn male technique or female technique? And they didn't want to inconvenience their teachers and didn't want to be separated from the other students. So they said, we will learn male technique. So she uses male technique, wears male clothes. Second priest uses female technique because that's what she was taught at university. But wears male clothes because she borrows clothes from the head priest. Third priest uses female clothes and female technique because she learned female technique in her training course. She didn't have the option of learning male technique and she bought her own clothes. So there's a lot of variation there. Different people will wear different clothes or use different technique. I know several people who will wear male clothes when they're doing ceremonies outside the shrine because they say if they wear female clothes, people don't recognize them as priests. They don't know what female priest clothing looks like. And so they're like, what are you some kind of Miko who's come to perform for us? This is really weird. Or there are people who wear male clothes because they like them more, because they think they're easier to wear or more comfortable or easier to move in. So although Jinja Honcho makes a fair number of pronouncements and regulations, they don't always get adopted in the most strict sense by local shrines um, because they may not necessarily fit into the local context or cultural context and so they often get adapted or bent or sort of approached from a slightly different angle.
0: Thank you and out of your curiosity, do you notice that there's much of a desire amongst young Japanese to join the priesthood
1: So this is a really interesting question. So like I said, there's this huge demographic shift that's happening right now where there aren't enough children of priests who want to enter the priesthood. And like I said, this is because of economic reasons, because it's really hard to live off of the income of a priest, especially at these small shrines. So you often have to work one or two extra jobs on top of being a priest. It's because of the demographic shift and also because of pretty long period of time training takes. So if you're working a full-time job, asking your boss, hey, can I take 30 consecutive days off is really, really difficult. But what we are seeing is that there are a fair number of young women who aren't from shrine families who are really interested in entering the priesthood for a variety of different reasons. So they might have experience serving as a miko, sometimes called a shrine maiden, who is sort of an assistant at shrines and performs certain ceremonies. So they might have served as a miko in high school and become really interested in the priesthood, or there are people who enter because they're really interested in Japanese history or traditional forms of Japanese performing art, or people who just really love shrines, they've really enjoyed traveling to them. Also a really interesting category in people I've interviewed, people who have lived overseas for a period of time, And while living overseas, they felt their sense of Japanese-ness really reinforced. And so then when they came back to Japan, they became really interested in exploring things that they felt were inherently Japanese and were drawn to Shinto. So people become interested for a lot of different reasons and will often enter one of the Shinto universities, study, do very well there, and then be unable to find jobs upon graduation because the primary employer of priests who aren't from shrine families is those large shrines, the sort of Ise shrine, Meiji shrine, the big tourist destinations and most of those shrines refuse to hire women. Um, Which means that you have this group of very excited, very energetic young women who are attempting to enter the priesthood and a lot of them are being closed out. And a lot of the time at these conferences that they're having about this demographic issue and this demographic crisis that's facing Shinto, someone will stand up and will say, okay, we're talking about like how to get our kids interested and how to change our home education such that our children become more interested in like entering the priesthood. But we have this untapped group of people who are actually really interested in entering and who are getting their credentials. There's also some people who, uh, aren't from shrine families but when they retire they decide I actually want to become a priest and they wind up entering a university program in their 50s or 60s and graduating and then being unable to find a job for very similar reasons and so a lot of the time there are these commentators at these conferences saying well we have this untapped demographic of people who are really excited about entering the priesthood why don't we think about Trying to integrate them more. And often they're shut down and they say, no, we should really be thinking about how do we get our children excited about this. So it's somewhat a complicated issue. Um, there's, it's really difficult to get people who are obligated to want to not fight against that obligation. But then it's also really difficult to integrate the people who are excited, but who fall outside of category of people who are assumed to enter those roles if that makes sense
0: yeah amazing phenomenon thank you for answering my questions so far before we finish the episode could you share with us what projects you're currently working on
1: yeah okay so the big one is obviously my dissertation which will be done at a point in the future hopefully hopefully in the not too distant future I have a couple of other projects that I'm working on. I think the only one that has officially been announced is I actually have an essay and a pedagogy volume that's coming out later this year. But there are a couple of other smaller projects that I'm working on related to Japanese religion and specifically to Shinto that will hopefully be announced in the not too distant future.
0: Great, well, we will be looking out for that. Thank you, Dana. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You can find a link to Din's research profile in the description below. Next week we will be joined by Eiko Rotz, Associate Professor of Japan Studies at the University of Oslo, to discuss heritage making in Japan, examining how the process of heritagization can secularize religious sites such as Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines, and the role of nationalism within heritage. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.